Hello and welcome to the No Common Sense Podcast, where we discuss the issues with having no common sense morality in a pluralistic society. My name is Clement, and I'm a budding philosopher with an interest in ethics and religion. And joining me today to help with this discussion is Taylor. Taylor, say something about yourself. Um, well, apparently I wasn't written an intro, so that's great. Uh, but I am a political science student right now, and hopefully will be going on to a PhD in a philosophy, theology, so similar interests. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, um, what we're going to be discussing today is basically some arguments for uh, closed borders versus open borders, and then hopefully getting into some specifics with the um, the Democratic Republican campaigns here in 2016. Because um, that's all that matters right yeah, now, apparently. All that matters. Yeah. Um, you have to say Trump, and then people will listen to you. Um, we start with Trump. Trump. What? Oh, I'm sorry. So what argument do you want to start here with? Um, I think probably one of the ones for closed borders, the political functioning one. Um, I find it interesting because of the idea that uh, for a democracy to work well, you need to have a sense of comradeship. Um, called camaraderie. Camaraderie. Yeah. Comradeship. <laughs> <clears throat> be like, comrade i think you're using the language <laughs> wrong <laughs> um and this sense of camaraderie why is that word so hard for me right i don't now? know maybe because you're not part of the united so soviet socialist republic but okay. you know whatever that, that might be that uh, might yeah. be oh, one of the issues but a sense of like companionship maybe that you all are coming from the same place that yeah. sort of uh that sort of feeling is how a democracy works if you feel like you have a shared interest or shared um, culture, then whenever you are casting your vote, you understand that the, the other people are coming from the same place. And that when you add a bunch of, um, let's say, immigrants to that situation who are coming from different countries with different cultures, and that feeling of being in a different place than you, you kind of feel alienated. You don't think these people are having your best interests um, to begin with. Um, so that's a, a type of uh, feeling I've seen and heard from people. Uh, especially people I know who are for uh, more closed borders and less immigration. They just feel that it's kind of messing with their culture in a way that keeps them from getting the uh, the policies they want through. And you know what? I'm going to say that most of those people that have that opinion and told it to you are, are probably white. And you know why? Because the, ultimately... The United States has been known for its immigration policy and letting immigrants in and, and the whole melting pot culture idea for at least a century now. Uh, it's really weird how, how we go about this because this is a, a shared viewpoint between socialists and communists, uh, especially the old uh, so um, Soviet Union. But it also is this idea with uh, the right and radical right in the United States that we all have this kind of shared common culture. The reason that we don't need more social programs is because people will take care of their neighbors if we don't have them to begin with. Like, that's the whole thing. Oh, healthcare? Fuck that. We don't need a system for that. All we need is a lot of people who are willing to share and, and care about each other. But the problem is the same people that are saying that are, like, super greedy. So it's kind of a difficult it's something to wrangle with. You know? I think another part of it is when the, the shift in, in focus of power and also the shift in focus in, in voting, I think, went from the, the state and local governments towards the federal. It just increased this feeling of alienation. Whenever it was more focused on the, the, the state government, your culture was basically all in that state. But whenever you have the, the focus on the, the federal government, you can have states like in the like on the coastal regions, which have completely different cultures and beliefs than you do. And so you feel like those people, those states that are having all of this influence are taking away from what you want in your particular state. Um, I think that's why you've seen recently a lot of backlash with um, uh, abortion laws and also uh, gay marriage laws where the states are trying to take back some of that control. Um, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing pretty much depends on the R&D. But um, it's, it seems to, to me that there's not really a good way to deal with that right now. I don't know. I think there are some, some recent examples that would kind of uh, lend to, to this whole idea. First of all, uh, the idea of, of immigration and 
we'll talk a little bit about uh, brain draining other countries. But and this is a perfect example of this. But but the recent uh, thing with uh, the Democratic National Convention and Kazir Khan holding up the Constitution to basically Donald Trump and everybody that was watching the DNC and then following through with all of this other television appearance and radio appearance and all this. And and uh, for a little bit of uh, background, Kazir Khan is a Harvard-educated lawyer who is a Muslim immigrant and who spoke at the DNC uh, and basically uh, chastised Trump for not reading the very constitution that if he were elected president, he would swear to uphold. So this is kind of contradictory because uh, what... Mr. Khan, or uh, no, I don't think he's a doctor. I'm pretty sure he's just got that title. But what he's trying to advocate for is more American in principle than what our primary uh, candidates are trying to focus on here. And it's really funny how that works. You know, you get this kind of, uh, I'm not going to say stigma, but this feeling around immigrants that, you know, if you're here in the United States, and especially if you've come here legally, there's a sense of pride that you are a United States citizen. The citizenship test is absolutely insane for what you have to know. You know, like Americans probably don't know all of this because our education system Cliches. has failed us. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, seriously, though, all I'm saying is that immigrants probably know more about America than Americans do. And so if we're talking about propagating this culture, they have this all in the bag. They have the right idea. They probably are closer to what the founding documents uh, we're trying to intend than what Americans are right now. Uh, another thing that I'll address kind of uh, in, in counter to your conversational point earlier is that some of these other um, Republican focuses, you know, abortion, gay rights, and, and such, well, gay rights isn't so much a thing anymore, but it's all kind of driven from the same thing of the stupidest war in American history, the Civil War. Okay, all, all, all these things, all they were about was being able to maintain their right to do something. And for a libertarian, that's great. Don't peg me as a socialist for saying this, but honestly, all of these issues can be solved collectively either one way or another. And the way that the federal system works is, yes, states are supposed to have rights. States are supposed to be able to do their own thing and to experiment with their own thing. That's why in Colorado and Washington, it's legal to smoke pot, even though it is federally illegal. But see, it's not being prosecuted because we are experimental states to see how this would do in a federal society. And you know why I can say that is because Mitt Romney, when he was running a few years ago, was saying that his health care plan would work the best because it was basically the same as Obamacare and it worked in the state of Massachusetts. That's a state. Well, actually a commonwealth, but pretty much a state. You know, so, so it's weird that we kind of stick to this idea of, whoa, well, states should have all these rights when we're dealing with this as a nation anyway, when no change is made until the Supreme Court makes the decision whether it's constitutional or not. So this, this border war, this thing, especially about immigration, is honestly just odd that we define these borders and then act as though we have to be different because we are members of them. So th this whole idea, I I'll go a little bit further with this because, you know, having ourselves be in, in a more philosophical bent. Uh, if you've read parts or all of Plato's Republic, you find that the same sort of issues and topics are discussed and discovered, especially towards the end. I think it's, it's book four, book three and four, where Socrates and Plato are kind of going back and forth about... Three uh, is just hating on the poets. Basically. Yeah, yeah, honestly. It, so, so where is censorship need to be? But what does it mean to be a collective society? So they start off and, and they do the, you know, the bare bones, the logistics of everything. And then they say, well, how are we going to keep this society together and running? And Socrates is saying, no, songs are like the most powerful form of language and the most convincing. That basically, you get to hypnotize people with songs, which honestly would make sense for the popular music today. And, and you know, for all of you that listen to popular music that are listening to this podcast, okay, that th those margins don't cross. But <laughs> we'll say this. Uh, because he thought that, you can see that the philosophical emphasis on what it means to become a person of a nation, for instance, the nation of the Kurds, where the Kurds are split up among three uh, sovereign states, uh, the, the culture really does have an impact, 
but at the same time does not have to be defined by state lines. Yeah. Um, I should have said this in the beginning, but the article that we're getting some of our material from is uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, their entry on immigration. Um, So if you want to look in more detail about what we're talking about, because we're basically just picking and choosing little snippets of it, um, you can go there to check it out. Um, What you said is fairly similar to what the, the... the counter arguments the article brings up um, in saying that it's it's almost it's hard to tell how much of a, a a shared culture Americans have because of our history of of basically being all immigrants um, and how the, the the different cultures kind of did move towards um, like in the beginning we're kind of separated out and you would have groups like. Uh, uh, living in, in so, solitude, but as it's, it's it's grown more and more, you you're having more of these these cultures being pushed together, and you can see that that even like a, a, a like a, a Mexican culture in America is almost not uh, recognizable compared to a Mexican culture in Mexico itself, just because of how the ideas have been meshed around. Um, so that's one of the our counter arguments against that. It's because we saying that we already don't have a, a common cultural um, background. Um, and there is the other counter argument that the article brings up saying that maybe we do with uh, some of our like a more American ideas like the uh, the um, the American dream. Basically, you can you can start at the bottom and work your way up. Um, so that sort of thing could be a unifier for our, our policies. Um, but we should probably move on to a different argument now. Would you like to pick one out, Taylor? Um, you know, I, I suppose that I could. Uh, while I'm finding what I want here, I'll, I'll say that the last thing uh, on on this subject should be that, uh, you know, ultimately, predominantly in the world, we are known and honestly hated for some of our more American ideals, and, and including the American dream uh, and and our idea of you know freedom and take the bull by the horns and you know we're we're just we're just gonna William Shatner everything. There's there's a lot of disenfranchised determinists in the world and in America who don't agree with our ideals of freedom and liberty, um, but that's okay. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna do. I would like to do uh, uh, a little bit on arguments for open borders now. And uh, for cosmopolitan egalitarianism, because it is a very uh, interesting perspective on things, especially as we're getting into this globalized society. While I mentioned earlier that the world is looking in on America as a teenager with a gun, you know, like you don't really trust them, but at the same time you have to because they have the power behind this situation. Uh, We are becoming nationalist. And nationalism is definitely a thing. If you've ever seen a Trump rally, you understand that nationalism is a thing in the United States, uh, especially among you know uh, rich white men who like to go to Trump rallies. Uh, I can't say much because I am well. Well, I'm white. The other part's not so much. Uh, well, and, and to be determined. Yeah, yeah. I should have said rich white old men. So I've got two of those four categories. <laughs> but anyway, so. Won't talk about which ones. Yeah. If if we're uh, nationalists, then w- what happens when we're, you know, infringing and developing upon this globalist society? I've met a couple of libertarians uh, in, in the course of my studies, and in fact, I've been having some pretty active conversations with them. And even a libertarian will agree that there should be no trade embargoes among borders because that infringes upon the rights of people to trade with each other economically uh, no matter what. And, you know, in fact, some of the national borders are causing problems in trade because of what gets subsidized and what gets changed and uh, the value of the working dollar and the value of the working hour. So the whole idea of cosmopolitan egalitarianism is that it should not matter where you are born, you should have the same inherent rights. So uh, a section, if I can find here... Uh, we'll, we'll kind of uh, explain what this idea is about, and it goes as such. Citizenship in Western liberal, liberal democracies is the modern equivalent to feudal privilege, an inherited status that 
greatly enhances one's life chances. Like feudal birthrights privileges, restrictive citizenship is hard to justify when one thinks about it closely. In other words, egalitarians regard open borders as a requisite response to the enormous economic inequalities which currently exist between countries. So if you're born in, like, Niger, you're, you're not going to have the best opportunities uh, as though you were uh, born in Sweden or the United States or Canada. And I'm really going to stress Canada there because, you know, they're pretty cool. But the, the point being... A. What? A. A, a yeah. <laughs> uh, but a cosmopolitan egalitarian would argue that uh, all citizens should have the same uh, rights to, in fact, uh, American plug here, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That that, no matter what your circumstances outside are, and no matter how kind of um, contradictory that might be because of the economic resources that are around you, uh, that that still should be a predominant idea. So this does come, this form of argument does come from a, a more modern understanding of, of freedom. Um, I suppose it's not completely modern because there were, you did have the, some of the ancients who who thought that uh, that freedom wasn't like the the American way, but it is coming from a more a, a understanding of what you can actually control in your life, and it is seen as as most people that even if you do have some limited control once you are born to be able to um, make choices, what you learn in your society and and what background you are uh, you're you're from determine your options it's it's um it's an idea of like a positive freedom that in order for you to basically be able to live the the best possible life you need to have a certain amount of education and a certain amount of right education and with that education you can then make more free choices in a way that you actually have to give people freedom. You're not born with it in the way that Americans tend to think that they are, that even if they come from the worst backgrounds, they can be able to, to pull up their bootstraps and get a job and then become the president of the United States. That's the American idea. Um, but you can see that it kind of changing in a lot of the, the liberal um, the liberal part of our, our country where we, we're starting to have a, a basically – when, even when it comes to uh, our criminal law system, we're trying to be more forgiving of people just because of their backgrounds. Um, and so if you – it would be in the case their argument would be you can't blame someone for being born in a country where they learned absolutely nothing and were not able to even learn to read and write. Well, That's this not is their applicable. fault. Otherwise, um, you know, there's a lot of area – uh, in which some people do not necessarily understand that, that they are coming from this idea. For instance, I'll go a little bit outside of the, the immigration policy and, and go a little bit into uh, cultural norms and such, uh, where, uh, you know, the conversations that I have have opened me up to realize that uh, as an American white male, I, I do not have a lot of perspective that other cross-sections of our American culture have. For instance... Uh, you know, we don't have to worry about being uh, stabbed and raped if we try and walk to our car at, at night like any woman in America might. Uh, we were kind of born with the idea that we are safe no matter where we go. And it is difficult to think once you have been born and bred under that perspective to think that there is a different possibility. Uh, in the same sense, in, in an international climate, uh, you know, the... Uh, South American cultures and uh, Central American cultures uh, have this predominating hatred for the way their economic systems work because it's uh, basically in service to the United States, you know, um, or to whatever uh, colonizing entity there was. Uh, for instance, in the older times in Peru, uh, the Spanish would basically take the resources and labor of Peru uh, leaving nothing but an unequal uh, representation for that that amount of work. So, if you were going to drill down these these basically these are these are really varied, but like the 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 key principles that these two sides are using um, to come to their their conclusions of what we ought to do when it comes to immigration, what would you say they are? Well. Uh, in, in a cosmopolitan egalitarian perspective, 
uh, would move towards a more globalist society. So uh, just as we were talking earlier in culture, uh, we would need to enculturate the entire globe to, to believe the same things, to believe the same perspectives, uh, possibly using the common myth, such as Joseph Campbell had suggested. In all of our ancient histories, we have this, this common thread that runs through. So a lot of it would be um, functionally positive freedoms, yes. Although egalitarianism is a theoretical uh, concept, uh, functionally, yes, there would have to be positive freedoms provided. Uh, that's, that's one thing. So the culture would have to be there. And then the other thing is we would have to be so economically interdependent that we could not uh, survive without the contributions of one country. Uh, and the reason being uh, that way everybody has an equal stake. And although competition is not dead, uh, it is still uh, upholding of whatever the culture is. So for instance, if the only natural resource in Peru or some other South American country is trees and gold, and suddenly, you know, people start growing hemp so they don't need paper for trees anymore, and gold completely loses its value, we need to be able to maintain the economy of that small country in comparison to the world. There, there's no more just uh, dropping people literally off the face of the earth because they're of no economic contribution to us. Uh, th this is a very person-driven uh, philosophy. Yeah, I think the the big difference between the two sides is just where uh, one wants to place their responsibility. Um, and so in, in saying that, it is kind of a, a determinism, which is saying that, um, I don't think we defined it, but determinism basically says that uh, our lives are, are, are based on um, the causes that came beforehand, so we don't really have as much freedom as we think. Um, so if I did never learn to read, I never had the, th the freedom to uh, basically... Um, read any books and to, so that to choose to educate yourself yeah. in a sense. and so um that that's throughout every single thing you do in your life um and so that would be from the people who are more uh globally minded they want to give everybody the as most positive freedoms as they as they can and from the the more closed borders type of mindset people think they themselves it's very individually focused that we are responsible for ourselves and ourselves uh pretty much only um, and this is, what does it really matter too much to like a smaller country in this point of view? Cause, because it's their job to improve their country. It's not our job to take the, them from their, their, their broken down country. Um, and, and basically why should I sacrifice anything for this country? Cause we built this country up. Um, they did, they didn't do it. They're just going to reap off of our bounties basically. Um, yeah, they, they take a real messiah complex to that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like egalitarians wouldn't say you have to save other countries from themselves, uh, or at least they would try to heavily avoid that topic. But that's basically the first thing in defense that the opposite side would bring to that argument. Yeah. Um, to go on to what I wanted to talk about specifically today, which is the refugee crisis, which um, is still actually a big issue in the news now. Um, but the idea of a country helping a, a people from another country, like a, the country as a whole versus an individual in a, uh, in that country, when that country's democratic, because when it's democratic, um, it can feel like when we were going to the, the original, uh, argument that, that, that argument of the cultures making us feel like we're not coming from the same place in alienation that I don't really have a choice in whether we help these people and that that isn't as morally satisfying as if I see someone hurt and I go and, and help them individually and personally. Um, I've heard this argument before that it's not, we shouldn't have the government taking in these refugees or helping these people. We should have the, the private citizens uh, contribute, contributing to them with their private money um, because it's it's their right to choose who they help and who they don't help. Um, That's a very slippery slope and a very difficult perspective, though, I would say, because uh, then you get the Trump phenomenon uh, saying that we should bar all Muslims from the United States because 
we don't know who's going to be a terrorist out of the women and children that are coming in. Uh, whereas most homegrown Muslims are actually ethnically um, Middle Eastern, but have Is lived that, in the United States. Is that close to the same thing? I think that it, it's more uh, a case where um, it's not about banning Muslims from coming in, but saying that we are going to try to help those countries by by means of producing funds, and we're not going to accept the refugees, but we're going to basically try to work on their country, leave them around their country, don't have them coming into to our country. Um, so I, interventionism. I, yeah. that. Well, I, I think that for some people it is truly not morally satisfying to, to have a, a country as a whole sending aid or giving aid to another country um, whenever it's different than than saying, I want to take in one of these refugees to my house or something like that. Well, uh, I don't know. See, when I, I think we might have different perspectives on, on what the refugee crisis entails when it comes to governmental intervention because, uh, you know, I don't think that the government is saying, oh, well, there are millions of people that are fleeing uh, Turkey and Yemen, so let's send Turkey and Yemen money so that they don't have to flee. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that that's the problem because that the government was, is the problem. That was to begin more with. like an, an example with the 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 feeling of. Um, but you're saying no, don't would, set up yeah, FEMA camps well, in our states. I was going to use it like a contrast to say that it would be like um, you inviting a refugee into your house, just like it would be like me giving money directly to say um, a country which was had a natural disaster. That right. that that personal. Um, that personal connection I have with the issue is more satisfying to me than me having given tax money to the government and then have that money then push over to the to whatever uh, issue. And so instead of having, um, say, the government set up camps and places where the refugees can stay, those people would be wanting to have uh, private citizens allowing and taking in those refugees. I think what we need to remember is um, we have an economic obligation as well. So although we're referring to the, you know, moralistically what would happen if we allowed refugees into the country, which, by the way, the United States, um, there was an executive order that only basically allows 10,000 refugees. Out of the millions, 10,000 refugees get approved to come into the United States, whereas uh, places like Germany and uh, the Nordic countries and uh, a lot of East Europe is just getting swamped with millions of refugees, whether they choose it or not. Uh, and the only reason that they're closing their borders is because they can't fiscally sustain these things. But why I say that this is an economic problem is because, as we know, as Americans, the Middle East is our oil belt. Although it only provides like, what, an eighth or I don't even think it approaches a quarter of our oil and natural gas resources. Uh, it is still enough of a large chunk of our oil-driven economy, remember oil is the new gold, that we have to do something in order to sustain our relations with that country uh, and in order to sustain our trade. Honestly, I don't think that this refugee crisis stuff is all that altruistic, uh, but we're doing it in our economic obligation and we're also uh, in our uh, unitarian obligation. For instance, uh, the EU, UN, uh, NATO, those organizations have been pushing the United States as they are these global councils um, because, you know, being part of these organizations, they think we should still have an obligation uh, even though we are kind of landlocked and away from the problem. But you know what? That didn't stop us from going into World War II, so... It's a, and you know so there there's there's the moral obligation and it's understandable I think that that Americans would say well it's not like I'm giving to charity you know I'm not sending dollars through the mail to go help so these refugees so it's more like you're you're too stupid this is actually in your you're in your interest to accept these refugees which is literally what the government's responsibility is to do that's yeah. why we have a government that's why we have representative leaders although they're not functioning very well I think that. Yeah. There are arguments to be made. I think there is, is a, a counter argument to that. If you're you're talking about the the say the 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 personal part of helping uh, mm. other country refugees, is that 
most people, unless they're forced to, aren't going to help other people. Um, right, and they're also not going to see it. See, like the, the the need to help other people. Yeah. Well, I think well, I think that's no. I mean, they're not going to see the people. Oh, see the people. Yeah. Like, okay, so there's, and of course they've done studies about this and and things, but like. The, the camera recordings of people, like 20 people just walking by somebody that's dying on the streets from a stab wound in New York shows that it's not necessarily important that somebody be within the vicinity of someone who is suffering in order to choose to help them or not. It's not that that matters, but when you only have 10,000 refugees and they're probably all stuck kind of near the eastern border of the country in these FEMA camps, uh, other than what we see in the news, I don't think that uh, Americans have a real connection personally to the issue at hand. First of all, they don't have the knowledge of that issue because a lot of people don't keep up with the current news. Uh, but they also are not seeing the suffering of these people. This is not Vietnam. We're not showing monks burning in the streets, you know. Yeah. Is it, though, at that point, like, someone should... Is it is it even like morally okay to force people to help other people? Like if you were say using someone's, or is that an agreement? Whenever you are part of this democratic system, that any the people you elect will choose to help people. Right. Sometimes. Well, I mean that's, or the, that's the federal system. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it still seems it seems interesting that what that that we do have to sometimes force these people to help other people, but. I think to a lot of people that seems really um, just a, a real problem with them having the freedom to choose. Who... Yeah, I mean, even even forcing them to see them at some point. I, I realize now that as I've been bringing this up, you know, that I, I say that a lot of Americans do not have the, the personal connection with these refugees and their suffering. Uh, it's an interesting thing uh, to counter that to say um, some of the – Luckily, um, uh, uh, crap, Ratif not ratified. They weren't ratified. And these the state laws against abortion, basically, to try and make abortion difficult to, you know, that you have to widen the, the hallways in an abortion clinic and, and all that. Uh, part of those rulings in some states had said that if a woman wants to get an abortion, she has to receive counseling. And part of that counseling is she has to be shown an ultrasound with the living child uh, and the only choice that she has is she can choose to close her eyes basically and cover her ears that's 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 the choice that she gets but she has to be shown the ultrasound so basically if you don't want to see that all of these refugees are are suffering and are living in these insufferable conditions then you have to plug your ears and close your eyes and spin around in circles and go la la la, la because it's it's happening but at the same time, as you, you have an, uh, a natural right to either choose to see and accept these things that are happening or choose not to. So I just find that to be an interesting uh, uh, counter, you know, that, that we don't even have to be altruistic to the sense that we see these things. Uh, but at the same time, our government, because it is in our economic interest, and that's basically why, uh, chooses to help refugees and allow them in our borders. I think the other thing that we should cover, and I'd like to get in a short you know, discussion about this, is uh, why we see them as dangerous, or I should say why uh, a certain cross-section of the country sees them as dangerous. And I'll refer to the Trump phenomenon. I think it's because uh, it's the, the idea of there's a, you see a, like a bushel of apples, you see one bad apple, and then you start to think that they're all it's just, it's it seems like if there's any possibility that there is something say dirty within a group of things we just automatically have a, a gut feeling of kind of just wariness of that if you see like a, a bunch of apples that all looks pristine and fine you're like I'm, I'm okay with eating that um, but I think that's what they see they see like all these refugees and they know because there have been some people who are uh, terrorists in them um, and they see that as durying them all that we just can't take them ill because because of, of the slight possibility that someone will be 
um, <laughs> basically a terrorist. I'm sorry. So there, there's this whole like, okay, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. You do have this instinctual gut reaction. But at the same time, uh, a big vibe for the Republican National Convention was to be able to open and conceal carry or possibly open carry. I don't know what it is. So basically, you know, you're saying that, uh, you know, in, in the United States, it is the right of the people that anybody in any specific room that you're in, except for maybe a federal building, can have a gun and shoot anybody that they so choose because they have the discretion while the gun is in their hand. But yet, we think that it's okay for that person to have I a wasn't gun. saying it was consistent. I was saying that this is no, what people... No, apparently that's what... But <laughs> this, this is what the people... They're, they're not always consistent with their, like, basically their, their key principles that they use to, yeah. to figure out their morals. I think that most people walk around just listening to their guts whenever it comes to moral issues. There's not True. too much re- reflection there. But um, it's I, completely misrepresented and completely arbitrary. How, ma- how many refugee um, terrorist attacks have there been? Do you know? Any, any idea? Any numbers, indication whatsoever? It's probably been, like, since 9-11, like, 12 or something, that have been, like, Muslim-focused. Right, but no refugees. Yeah. There have been no Mm -hmm. refugees coming into this country and choosing to kill people for the name of Allah or whatever, the jihadist regime. It's not necessarily a rational fear, but I do think it it, it does... People think that it's just adding to the risk, and why add to the risk whenever you can say, I'm not going to to allow any people to come in from these countries that have been known to produce radicalized people. And it it doesn't have to be based on statistical data, because for me personally, I don't think that most people think, and statistically, they are more um, likely to, to work on anecdotal evidence. If they see one person out of 10,000 that is a terrorist, they're not going to be thinking about the the infinite, like the infinitesimal percentage that is. They're going to be thinking of, oh, that means that there can be some terrorists in these refugees. And so and any of them could be a terrorist. Um, and so they don't really have the mindset of we're going to think about this like as a mathematical problem. Um, right. And most people... They just had such a fear of of this particular form of dying than other ones, which um, is is on the from you're looking from a statistical perspective irrational, but you're not going to get too many people to agree with that. I suppose that's true. You, I mean, there is that that inherent perspective, and especially since nine eleven and how the idea of terrorism has been propagated. Um, but that's the the danger of that idea, I would say. And again, we'll, we'll talk about some of these other uh, influences, but that has been culturally ingrained within us that, that terrorism is the worst way to die and, and terrorism is the most non-American principle that can possibly exist. Shut um, up, dog. Hello, dog. Um, the dog has something to say as well. Yeah. You know, we did for thousands of years uh, breed and captivate them. So now they're domesticated. So that's cool. We've turned them into little fluffy, like, right. like basically slaves. Um, I think the, there's there's a Facebook meme that came out when this refugees crisis was, was new hmm. um, that was basically saying, if you know one of the, these 10 grapes is poisoned, why would you eat any of them? Um, I think this is where people they run into the issues because they they think that the the possibility of there being a a terrorist in these in ten thousand refugees is a certainty, as in that there is going to be a terrorist in these ten thousand uh, refugees. Not that it's just a possibility, <laughs> but that's and reasonable people, probability yeah, anywhere. Yeah, like, people don't understand that even just eating grapes regularly, you have a chance of right. getting a bad grape that could kill you. There is still that chance, and and that is the thing that people don't understand. They they take possibility as certainty, and I think yeah. that's where you go wrong in your in your comparisons between the two situations. Right. I mean, if you if you decided that you wanted to go to a convention for rich old white men, there's still some measure of probability that somebody is going to be a terrorist in that room. 
And although that is a little bit of an abstraction, uh, it still serves to say that uh, there is danger in everything. Um, and I know that, you know, as humanity goes, we all have irrational fears. But, but this one has gotten pretty out of hand when you think about it. When you see the entire world reacting to the refugee crisis differently than we do, like, like Mexico or a South American country, some of the poorest countries in the nation or Africa, although they have their own problems, uh, would more readily take in refugees than the United States would because we have this cultural influx of uh, hate and fear for specifically the Muslim uh, jihadist terrorist. And it has gone from the, the otherization that we have propagated for these last 10 or 12 years of Muslims are bad people because there are terrorists in Muslims. And we forget about Christian terrorists in Africa for some reason because you know that doesn't have anything to do with us. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like to make a comparison with the, the school shootings um, and how much that has basically freaked out these 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 uh, um, college institutions, especially the one I go to. Um, they they there's a video for basically active shooters that every single person has to watch several times, and this is probably a good practice just to know the the, the these um uh, what's the word for that the, these uh. Precautionary measures. Precautionary measures, or 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 yeah, things to do. Uh, uh, what is the procedures? Maybe. Procedures. Yeah. Procedures in, in when these cases come about, like when you do have an active shooter. But the 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 with how many schools we have in the country and how many shootings there have been, the the chances of you being in one of those is so so very slim that you should be far more worried about car accidents, for instance. Um, but you just don't think about it that way. It's the There's specific kinds of death, I think, that people are just so fearful of that they don't want to die in this particular way. They would rather die basically accidentally than intentionally because they think that is more of a, like a slate against them personally that someone wanted to kill them versus... Um, someone accidentally killed them. And I, I, I think it'd be interesting to parse out why. Um, maybe we'll do that for some later episode and get back to uh, more about uh, immigration security and all that sort of I stuff. I would say that's relevant. And the other thing I think that, you know, for the three people that are going to listen to this podcast that I would want to publicize, sorry, Clement, but honestly, um, <laughs> that, that I want to publicize here is that uh, the procedural elements of taking in a refugee into the United States are so restrictive that there is a very, very slim possibility that a, that a terrorist can escape through. And ultimately, no matter what um, barriers you build up, no matter what sieve you pass people through, there's always going to be the one who slips through the cracks. And I understand that that's the same very fear that, that Americans have is that there's always going to be that one person. And so we try and take more precautionary measures. But at the same time, you basically have to pass the citizenship test in order to be a refugee uh, or a legal refugee in, in the United States. And again, we have that choice. That's what I want to say. We have that choice, whereas Germany, who has taken in by far the most refugees so far, does not have that choice. Because people are crossing the borders. Uh, when you have uh, people who are, you know, building shanty rafts, basically, yeah. and putting 20 or 30 people on, having their chance of dying rather than getting into this European country to experience a better, more free life, then you understand that nationally, no matter what your culture is, nationally and in the international community, there is a moral obligation to help these people. I think that people do seem to think and they, they treat all the, the different countries as having equal ways of vetting people like refugees. And they see things that happen in, in Germany and some of these other 
um, countries that are accepting these refugees in with very little um, uh, vetting in, in their process, that this is going to be the same way that it's going to happen in America. Um, and I think that that it, it just they will begin to when people see that like this, they'll begin to just intuitively see any sort of um, horrible thing that happens in Germany which there have been a few horrible things happening in Germany with her mm. refugees and automatically assume that this is going to happen in the United States, even though we have completely different processes for refugees. Yeah. Like, for instance, in, in France and Germany, especially, for the terrorist attacks that have been happening on trains and, you know, uh, like Bastille Day, that was a pretty terrible one. And they have found that that had um, terrorist roots uh, in mind. But... Again, uh, to point out culturally this idea of terrorism, it's so arbitrary. It's so loose. It's, it's basically a, a blank check for fearing and, and hating whatever we want to because we call every, you know, uh, including the, the federal system, including the president, uh, Fox News, all the liberal news outlets, everything, everybody would call uh, these school shootings terrorist events. But very few of them have been linked or tied uh, with Muslim terrorism or jihad terrorism. Uh, you know, uh, James Holmes, the Aurora Theater shooter, was just insane. Uh, the Columbine shooters were basically the uncool kids in the school and just took it out in seriously the wrong way rather than getting mental health. And this is not a Facebook advocation. This is not saying, you know, all the people who are, you know, we need we need less gun uh, restriction. We need more uh, mental health um, help. I'm not going to say that because they're going to be crazy people. But what I find interesting is that no matter what it is, no matter if it's a crazy person with a gun, it's still labeled as terrorism. No matter the motive, we are still afraid of the terrorists, the collective terrorists as a group. Yeah, this is the issue with having non-specific terms for what we're we're talking about, and and we're we're more worried about the action instead of looking at the motive itself in these people and right. having a specific label for that. Um, yeah, and I mean, I suppose if somebody is afraid of spiders, they're not going to be concerned whether it's a black widow or a brown recluse. But all the same. We're we're getting a little bit relaxed with this, and and we're forgetting that. Uh, and here's the cosmopolitan egalitarianism part: that as citizens of the world, that as just human beings in general, who for the most part would believe that every person has an equal right uh, to life and to an uh, an uninhibited life. Uh, you know, basically a, a life with a minimal amount of suffering. Uh, we're forgetting those elements in replacement of fear. And it'll lead me back to one of my favorite, uh, Benjamin, it was either Jeffersonian quotes or Benjamin Franklin. I don't remember which one, uh, but... We're not good with the citations. Yeah, not really. But uh, the, the idea stands, basically saying that uh, if you trade liberty for security, you will surely lose both. That is definitely Benjamin Franklin. Is it? Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, sometimes I forget, okay? And, uh, you know. That's okay. That's why I try to make as, as most vague references possible. And right. just take people's quotes right. and try We're, to push them off as my own. We are not very good philosophers. Hey, at least I tried to cite that, okay? Yeah. You know. yeah. It was this one man who lived a long time right. ago. Right. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not far, taking far other. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a plagiarist. Never mind. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but Is it more irrational to fear plagiarists or to fear terrorists is the question. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's which basically has, which the same. Has, which has the, the best chance of dethroning the government. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, uh, jihad terrorists are basically plagiarists of uh, the, the Islamic religion because they're taking the ideas of that religion and and using them I mean just just bastardizing can, can them you honestly plagiarize a religion though I think so yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think that religions are so fluid and they live in people that you can never really point to yeah but don't you think you're God so if you were to take a section out of the Bible and like say that it was your own you you it's God, so hard you know? to know original intent between but, True. like bef like for words that are uh, uh, 
2,000 years or so old. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, even, like, I've, I've just been having... a Christian religion. <laughs> I've been having a, uh, a literature class um, here recently, and we've been looking at very old Egyptian poems, and these are love poems, and the... This is relevant. This is relevant. Um, it's your podcast, man. <laughs> um, but the uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the the variation in interpretations on those love poems and how much of the our, our modern understanding went into what people were saying about them was fairly insane. Um, from going to interpreting the them caging birds in the poem to carrier pigeons, um, which. I do not think the Egyptians used at the time. Um, so it, it just, with religions, when you're, you're talking uh, about them, it's so hard to know what is original intent and what was has been taken on over time. Um, so I, it, it, as long as someone is has the gist of it, I usually would uh, put them in the camp of that specific religion because that's really the only thing you can do. But um, we should probably yeah. move on to talking about specific platforms hopefully with the right. like oh. five or six minutes we have left to but, talk about trump and yeah Hillary. yeah I, I will say this and this actually will lead into the next perspective when it comes to religion when it comes to uh politics when it comes to the refugee crisis and uh, you know as as the guest on this podcast I, i'm still gonna say it uh because this show is called no common sense just just in general here's a plug to like think about what you're doing Okay, just just think about these perspectives. The reason why this this whole homegrown terrorism has happened, the reason why um, the ideas of or the fear for terrorism has existed within the United States for so long is because people are listening to the mass influx of media outlooks or media outlets and, and whatever their Facebook posts are saying for their own ideas and beliefs. And they're just easily accepting them as their own and and taking that and running with it. So here is my plug to no matter what you're doing, and even in listening to this podcast, because we have ideas and opinions uh, too. The self-help section of the podcast. Right. Just just think, okay? Think about what we're saying and interpret it on your own. Don't be a mindless zombie because that's what caused this problem. To use a – to kind of summarize what Taylor was saying, he's basically saying – to shine a light onto your moral intuitions and examine them from a point of view that isn't basically using them at the, the point. So to, to look at whether you, you're principled in, in your belief on a moral uh, question or whether you're just taking a gut reaction because, um, like the, the name of the podcast suggests, there's no common sense. There's no common sense of morality. There's no common gut reactions to um, any of these these moral questions, and so we have to use something better than our gut reactions to uh, figure out what we ought to do. Yeah, um, be objective as possible. And although I'm not going to say listen to your gut, there are times where you should also listen to yourself and listen to your intuitions. Your intuitions are a part of the the overall picture you should take into account when you're looking at these questions. Yes, and without <laughs> going into metaphysics, I suppose we could move on to the next area. Trump of physics. Trump of physics. Yes. To coin a term, the wall will just come straight out of the ground, out of Mexican, made out of Mexican. That money. is really hard to yeah. see what intuitions or principles Trump is using in any uh, specific any time. time. Uh, I mostly mostly gut reactions, honestly. I'm. I just think that the spray tan has got to his head. That's that's where <laughs> I am right now. We're getting into talking specifically um, the the arguments Trump and Hillary have used for uh, um, Hillary's not necessarily for open borders. Um, she's probably closer to a. Well, she's a, gone back and a, forth. More of like a, I would say, uh, further towards uh, liking you, you, people you coming into the country it's versus so Trump. To like determine that is because she's jumped across the line. No pun intended. So many times. So, yeah, uh, but I think that Trump's main issue, which we talked about a lot, is definitely security. Hmm. Um, and as as we we went through, we we've kind of touched on all of the arguments and and, and problems with that particular point of view. Um, uh, so I don't think we need to do too much on that. Um, but 
We we should talk about the, Hillary a little bit. I think. Yeah, we need to definitely do that because I think that we in our previous conversation we were so uh, pro immigration. I would say at least Taylor was that we kind <laughs> of just kind of dealt with all of Trump's uh, specific uh, arguments for uh, immigration. But now we can try to look at a little bit uh, uh, Hillary's. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it is a little bit difficult to to peg Hillary down because she has uh, here. I'll put it in light terms. She has answered so well to her constituents' wants and needs that uh, uh, it is uh, honestly uh, difficult to determine what her position is. And and if you want the cookie cutter answer, then then go to a website and figure it out. But that's not something that that we really want to address. Uh, what I would like to say about Hillary is that. She is a former Secretary of State, which is a high-level position that is concerned about specifically international affairs. And she didn't destroy the country while she was doing it, so she must have had some measure of success at it, meaning that she understands what uh, international relations will uh, proceed uh, from whatever we do with refugees and however we handle the refugee crisis. Again, right now, you have to understand that whatever Hillary is saying is she's uh, either pandering or addressing the concerns of her constituents of, of the nation, of the people who are yeah. listening to her. I think that Hillary's biggest shortcoming on immigration is to turn things back down south towards Mexico is basically not t taking into account and talking more about the, the real um, – economic issues when it comes to to um basically when we're trying to have a more welfare a welfare uh like focused system allowing a lot of uh poorer people into the country it it, it is something that from like we were talking about the global perspective would help a lot of people um but it does give uh, give its um take its toll on the the taxpayer whenever you're having uh, a lot of these people coming in and taking um, part in this welfare system but aren't bringing a lot of money with them because the yeah. way that welfare systems work is basically we all agree to pay in uh, a sum of money in order to basically have a, a type of lottery system where if one of us does fall in bad times we have a, a backup system for us yes but at the same time you have to be a confirmed citizen uh, for most of those social programs that's something that people don't recognize a lot either uh, I think, though, I, I want to focus a little bit on what the argument. Yeah, yeah. Are. I was I wasn't talking about necessarily illegal immigration. I was oh, talking right. about okay. legal Im okay. legal immigration, which people right. are talking about expanding. And if you were to basically legalize a lot of people, which is has been oh, you're about, saying naturalize uh, the people who are yeah, already here. You're going okay. to path to citizenship. Yeah, you're going to put to. a toll onto the 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 welfare system of any country that. If you add that many people to it, true. Um, Although uh, counter argument, uh, welfare programs like Social Security are already down the toilet. So yeah, we need to reorganize them anyway. Uh, but what I I, I do want to focus a little bit on uh, the immigration argument, uh, illegal and legal, uh, say in California, for migrant farm workers who are paid less than the minimum wage, and and the kind of two uh, contrary arguments that that are going back and forth that kind of define this argument for the migrant farm workers. Uh, one of them being, if we were to allow them citizenship, or if we were to even pay them the minimum wage, that means that farmers in California would be able to produce less, meaning less capital and less exports. So we can't do that, and they're already living like okay lives while they're doing that, and they're willing to do all that work and, and pick everything. But then the, the counter-argument to that is, well, wouldn't we have a stronger economy if we were to pay them the full wage, and then that money is repatriated and it goes back into our capitalist system? Because no matter which way you cut it, any immigrant legal Trickle or legal, up illegal... economics. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> any immigrant uh, legal or illegal is paying in uh, income tax-wise. And although the uh, welfare systems, that, that that's a whole separate issue, uh, I think on the surface level, uh, what needs to be addressed is be, you know that line between illegal and legal. And that is where uh, there is some gray area, 
Hillary or Trump. They really haven't talked much about it. Trump just says, keep him out. But he doesn't realize that that's bad for business. Or he does, because he's hired, like a lot of them. In fact, just the other day, he said, oh, I have hired so many black people, like a lot of black people and a lot of Mexicans, and they're great people, and I've hired all of them. Because that's the only thing he knows how to say. Um, Are we back to the French prostitutes now? No, we, he's hired a lot of, of people of different races. No, I think you're talking. I think you're talking about Bill Clinton. Oh, no, Bill Clinton. That, yeah. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> that <laughs> off subject. International affairs. Yes, international affairs. Uh, but I think I think that that needs to be addressed. Is that you know that is where the immigration area lies that people are already here doing work for us and they already have a mentality about that work. If you've ever hired a contractor, no matter, no matter where you are in these United States, the problem is going to be the same. Yeah, I still think, though, that, that people don't, again, with, with statistics, they aren't looking at overall how this is going to help or hurt the economy. Right. They're looking at this person coming in and working for cheap or taking my particular uh, source of income, Um and so that's what they're they they're having the issue with. They're not most of the time they're not willing to take a little hit in order for the overall economy to then start to grow in a way. Yeah, and I mean they're not complaining when they're paying for that cheap labor to fix their homes. No, unless they're old. But again, I, I think another thing is that this is uh, an international problem. If you've ever heard uh, British people talk about the Polish. You understand that this yeah, is not just centralized yeah. to the United States. And it's not a, all about like racial tendencies too. It's cultural too, as far as right. not wanting this white person who has a different culture than me coming in and and uh, either working for less or 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 basically messing with my way yeah. of living. Someone someone who is going to challenge the system in a capitalist way. See, everybody is for capitalism until those cheaper rates come in and you're undermined, and then they're all they're all pro socialism. So this is an example of how people have no common sense. They'll only do what helps them, or, what's in their primary. Like interest. we were saying, we were going to talk about um, a, the not just the 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 underskilled workers that are coming in, but the ones who are the the high end. Yeah, people. brain drainers. Yeah. Um, and how that is seen as a big issue too, because these people aren't someone who is like a like a like a who's only going to take like a McDonald's job. They're going to take my IT position, and I will be out my sixty thousand um, right. uh, dollar salary, and in with this person's fifty thousand dollar salary because they're just cheaper uh, right. labor. Um, and yeah, people are for the the capitalist system, but again, with this this alienation, they they don't think that they that people coming in from the country or from other countries have the right to to work yeah. in this capitalist. Again, Kazir uh, uh, Khan is a Muslim immigrant lawyer. Uh, a lot of jobs. What? No, it's a South Park reference. Okay. Yeah, we can, uh, we can we'll go on. into that later. Yeah, a, a lot of our uh, professors uh, in and some of our colleges are going to be, and especially in the areas of uh, economics and business. You know, the the local university in in Pueblo has a Hassan School of Business, literally started by immigrants uh, who <clears throat> are focused on on economics and business. So, uh, you know, because we're and we and honestly, we've been doing this forever. Uh, why the hell Albert Einstein was on the Manhattan Project, it doesn't really take much thought to understand why we allowed him to immigrate here, uh, you know, legally and, and without problems, is because we understood the ramifications of that education and what that could do. So, you know, it, it, either way you go, either you're very smart and very knowledgeable and we are going to take you, but we don't want you because then our high-paying jobs are undermined, or you don't have any money and any education but can do labor, like, great, and we don't want you because you're taking all of our low-paying yeah. jobs, to bring no matter this, what it is. To bring this yeah. back to the, what was the egalitarian argument? Cosmopolitan egalitarian, yeah. Um, about, say, like you were talking about uh, Albert Einstein being really smart and educated and how we basically wanted him 
Um, that type of argument is trying to basically level the ground so that being intelligent and having a good education is, isn't the only way you can get and move yeah. around throughout um, different countries. But we do have to, uh, yeah. I think, wrap it up. See how much he cared that he scienced for the Nazis. Anyway. Um, yeah, <laughs> on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, what, what, uh, what we're probably going to be doing uh, next week, I don't know if Taylor will be back or I'll have a different guest, but I want to talk about some specific uh, philosophy uh, when it comes to David Hume and his, uh, his talking about us using our our intuitions as something to base our, our morality on which is um something this podcast is um not necessarily in agreement with but um we and then possibly we might try to talk about something specific and apply it um to that situation um but these if these podcasts seem a little disjointed and it's, it's not the same thing over and over again That's we're just trying <laughs> we're just trying to basically uh, at least I'm trying to work through different uh, things we can do on this podcast and see what people like, see what people are interested in. And then from that, user fees, feedback, listener feedback, move on. The um, primary focus is to entertain, after all. Um, and, and enlighten. And enli- entertain and enlighten. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, with that, I will sign off and say good night. Good day? Good day. You can say good day. Do I'll podcasts have times? Um, no. It depends on when you're listening to this um, and what time zone and whether you're an immigrant um, into this country. So just in general, happy trails. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>